Hello and welcome, everyone. Hello. It's uh, The Insurgents, episode 94. 94. 94, if you can believe that. It's a lot of yap. It is a lot of yapping. Some would say too much. Some of our... Some of our listeners would probably say that's that's enough now. Still enough. That's yeah. too much. This guy's still, these guys are still yapping. <laughs> that's what they would say. They really are. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, well, welcome everyone. We're happy to be back. We got Rob and Jordan here. How are you doing, Jordan? How's it going? Rob, I'm I'm doing well. I'm I'm alive. That's all I can really ask for. Going into year three, still you know, knock on wood, still have not caught COVID, so. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I don't believe I have. I'm pretty I sure like I have. I think you would know. I think so. Well, I mean, that's the kind of weird thing about COVID, right? Is that some people just get it and don't, it doesn't really affect them that much. Um, so I guess, like, I know I was exposed to it for sure. Mm-hmm. Or some, like, it's probably about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, didn't your kid, your kid got it, right? Um, yeah, exactly. He was exposed to it at, uh, at school. And, yeah. uh, so and he was here. So who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I overall, it's funny though. Overall, I feel like I've been healthier for the last couple of years uh, than I usually am. Probably because people everyone's mad wearing masks in public places in the grocery store and stuff. <laughs> in terms of like colds and flus and this normal stuff that you get at this time of year, mm-hmm. I've been mostly okay. Yeah, that's a good point. I uh, yeah, I think same thing. I know no oral colds or anything. Um, yeah. I don't know, but we've got we've got four tests now uh, from the, the go. U.S. government here. So I'm gonna make those last uh, the next seven years that we're gonna be yep. dealing with this. So I think I'm in good shape. Yep. Well, you won't even need them anymore because it seems like we're just dropping all all the restrictions, just slowly getting uh, dropped. It seems like this idea of we're just gonna have to live with the pandemic is becoming kind of part of the sort of Western response to this thing. Mm-hmm. We've got People all kinds of places just of dropping. It. Yeah, they're bored. They're they want to move it. on. They're over it. Yeah. There was a quote, uh, Maloney, Sean Maloney, who's a house dem from, I think, Florida. And he is the head of the DCCC. And, like, he also kind of leads on the re-election messaging. And, yeah, that's, like, the Democrats' focus because they don't have anything else to run on. You know, they can't really run on Build Back Better, even though it's, like, the big <laughs> They can't the camps. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. They can't do that. They can't do raising the minimum wage. They're going to, you know, whatever uh, executive orders they've accomplished, they could, you know, point to those, but those aren't really huge. Infrastructure is a bipartisan thing. So Republicans are going to run on it too. And you're left with like nothing. They couldn't even voting do voting rights. rights. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like you're not, left with not nothing. Either. Yeah. And cool. They're going to have to try to run on COVID. But like in the immediate aftermath of November, December, January being really brutal because of Omicron, that skewed the data. And now like Biden has more deaths on his hands than than Trump does. And, you know, that's because people didn't get vaccinated. And that's because uh, Republicans have, you know, demonized the vaccines since the start. But like this is this is the reality. That's what they have to deal with. Right. So they can't say like everything's better objectively right now because it's it's not they have to say well we're opening up the country you know we're the we guided us back to normalcy and this is his thing and it's like we're gonna return to normalcy and his quote which i was like 
dying over. I guess it's going to be a little redundant soon, but he was like, people are sick to death of this pandemic. It's like, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> He's always got a way with words. That Incredible that choice of words. Yeah. yeah. Well done, sir. Yeah. And I just I remember the campaign, too. We're going to shut down the virus, Jack. That was his whole, how are we going to yeah. do that? Well, it's not totally clear. There's a lot of listen to the scientists we were going to do. He even mentioned that they would do further lockdowns if they had to, if that's what scientists advise. But it turns out if you just listen to scientists that say that lockdowns are bad, you can kind of finish that. You can follow through with that campaign promise while doing nothing. So that's that's politics. So, that's doing politics. Yeah, this this that's rush to reopen is. thing. It's just like, it's really weird. It's really, really weird. Like, but also here's the thing. What can't you do right now? Like, yeah. I'm asking like, you specifically, maybe you might not be able to use your roads <laughs> because of the, the trucks. But like, <laughs> like, realistically, what can't you do? The only restriction is you have to wear a mask sometimes and some places require you to show proof of vaccination. But other than that, yeah. what can't you do? Well, this is a good question because um, as you mentioned, we got a new government. We got a new government in Canada right now. Or the Canada, the, <laughs> the country's fallen. We've got a we've got a trucker yunta that has taken place. And uh, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. This is a, a movement that uh, is ostensibly against these kind of mandates. Um, it says what's what we're being told from certain uh, the people like in the movement and certain extremely online uh, leftists that want to lecture us about this. Got to, Jordan, first of all, we've got Americans lecturing Canada about what's going on politically. Americans got to mind their own business. Oh, like, you're on, no stranger you to that here. argument. <laughs> you don't even live here. Jesus. Um, no, but I do. We do. There are these like these American uh, Twitch streamers who have weighed in on this and are telling us, "Oh, you've got to support this. You got to support this uh, this workers' movement. This this uh, up this workers' uprising that's happened, which is you know basically a astroturfed movement of small business owners uh, who are you know they're they're protesting these mandates, these vaccine mandates." ostensibly but really what they want is just basically for everything to just for the even the minor like modest um public health measures that have been put in place they, that even that has been too much for them and they want even that to be removed and then as you pointed out for a lot of these folks like a lot of these folks by the way who took covid relief money and these are like small business owners that have been getting funding from the government during this crisis also another important thing to point out when you talk about this movement but as you point out, like the, the, there haven't even, haven't been these like draconian re restrictions like people are talking about. Uh, we've never pursued this zero COVID policy. Um, there has been sort of there is a mild lockdown. There was, um, you know, like you said, these basic measures in terms of like wearing masks in public places or getting, uh, you know, uh, getting a vaccine, showing proof of vaccination. And it's just amazing how even that, despite the fact that all this stuff continuously has remained open, you know, all the, the Applebee's and the Walmarts and all these chain stores have remained open this entire time. But people are just the, the basic concept of like having any public health measures whatsoever to deal with this pandemic in which, you know, thousands of people are dying or upwards of a million people in the United States has just been too much for these folks. And yeah. uh, that's the depressing thing. The grim thing is that they seem to be winning this argument. And like most elected officials seem to kind of agree with this, this basic stance. It's, it's, it's not good. Aren't there restrictions for like the lockdown specifically? Isn't that like 
province by province? Yes, yes. They, they. I think they think that it's this measure that's put in place, like by Justin Trudeau himself. Yeah, it's who, like Doug uh, Ford is doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it it goes on a it's on a province by province basis, um, and it happens sometimes with with these workplaces that are contributing to these mandates. But um, I know it's all part of this sort of like kind of sort of conspiracy theory about the the globalists that are using this to sort of seize power, and you know Justin Trudeau basically to institute uh, you know global communism is basically like the. Sick. The real, the real story behind the behind the headlines that the the, the <laughs> fake news media is not covering, and these fine yeah. folks are are trying to inform us of. The funniest thing that I've seen, like the online fights about uh, this topic, devolving into is what are what constitutes working class by like a ton of people who just yes have never been part of the working class, um, and one of them was like, someone was like, why do we care like. They're just in their trucks all day. And I just like kind of got a kick out of that because they, you know, they were like, it was just some person who had really no familiarity with kind of blue collar labor. It's like, I mean, they're, they're not for, 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 you know, most of their day. Sure. But like these people go from like business to business. If they're like a regional driver, like they might make multiple stops in a hall. Uh, They're stopping at gas stations, convenience stores and restaurants. And uh when you like what do they think the process is for making a delivery you have to interact with people in the warehouse you have to interact with like people who work in receiving and the you know the the floor manager and all these different types of like roles you're still having face-to-face contact with a bunch of people who often work in you know poorly ventilated closed spaces in these warehouses so i mean I, i worked in a receiving department in a warehouse before it was not fun but look when when delivery guys came that's sometimes just your only interaction with outside people for the day so you kind of chat them up like it's just they do interact with people so i do see a justification for wanting people like that who are all over the place to be vaccinated to wear a mask those are simple things uh this idea that they're they're you know the working class defenders who think this is just totally unnecessary is an argument that doesn't really you know kind of stick with me yeah. And the reality is when it comes to like the trucking industry in Canada, 90% of truckers in Canada are vaccinated. Like all the main trucking unions and advocacy groups are against this convoy. Like they want their drivers to be vaccinated for their own protection. Um, mm-hmm. We And we all know by this point, by the way, that, the, that we should reiterate this. We all know that the vaccine is not some be all and end all solution to COVID. It doesn't stop people from getting COVID or spreading it, but it can, pre- it can prevent people from getting seriously ill, which is, I think, a good enough reason that people should do it in the first place. Um, the vast majority of actual truckers in this country are vaccinated and are not part of this movement. The huge majority of people that are in this convoy are like driving, you know, Ford F-150 trucks and SUVs from like the suburbs again, or like owning, you know, landscaping businesses or things like this that are just kind of like latching onto this movement and kind of cosplaying as working class. Um, Regardless, though, but it's like you pointed out, there is this kind of discrepancy between who counts as working class and who doesn't. Um, I don't doubt that there are working class people involved in this movement that are against these kind of public health measures. Um, you know who else is working class, though? Nurses, um, you know, medic- medical workers, uh, people that work in restaurants, people that work at grocery stores. Uh, these people are also all working class as well. And a lot of these folks 
uh, as part of this convoy are constantly uh, screaming at and harassing these people for like asking them to follow these basic measures. Recently in Toronto, this con this like protest was going on, and they had to literally tell nurses and healthcare workers not to wear their uniforms so they don't get harassed by these people. Um, so there's this there's this insistence that we have to listen to working class people when they speak, but again, there's this complete uh, lack of ability for people to actually like separate who's working class and who isn't. And with this this specific group of sort of reactionary predominantly white people expressing this kind of very, very like typical sort of white grievance politics is what you could boils down to, you know, very, very similar to what the Tea Party was doing uh, 10, 12 years ago in the United States. You know, these people count as working class. We have to listen to them and we have to always take their concerns seriously and we have to always not alienate them. But yeah, again, when you talk about, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest, predominantly working class people, indigenous people, predominantly working class healthcare workers and other frontline workers in this pandemic, working class. And apparently they're the ones that just, just shut up and, uh, and you know, listen to these these like extreme reactionaries as they scream at them for trying to do their jobs. Uh, it's really, really backwards. And it's very, very annoying to have these kind of like ultra leftists online start lecturing us uh, about how uh, being opposed to this obviously astroturfed right wing movement is somehow like you know uh, you're a fake leftist or whatever if you if you have anything to say about this really really frustrating and again americans if you're not you don't live here you don't even go here stay out of it we don't hear, we don't want to hear it <laughs> i believe first the nerves of it. these people i first learned of it when i saw one of the most prominent magic the gathering card artists had showed up and i saw it like in a magic the gathering like category on twitter <laughs> and all these people were mad and <laughs> Uh, yeah, of course, that's Seb... how you find out about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's important. And yeah. his name is Seb McKinnon, and he went, and he was like, I'm proud to stand with you know Canadians fighting for freedom. And so then I asked my friends who live in Ontario, like, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, yeah, this is like, you know, being pushed by a lot of like white nationalist groups. <laughs> Fuck, sick. All right, cool. Yeah. Like, same, same shit that's happening here. And all these people kind of fall into this trap that like under this like freedom and liberty guys. Uh, and the guy the guy doubled down uh when people were like why are you there this is who's linked to it he posted a video on his instagram bipoc voices at the freedom convoy and it's like come on man yeah <laughs> come on you gotta come i'm not i'm not buying it like just give me a break yeah the whole thing has just been a really grim spectacle. It doesn't seem to be going anytime, ending anytime soon. Again, and not talk about in other ways that this is like, oh yeah, this this spontaneous working class movement. They raised ten million dollars on GoFundMe, <laughs> which was then like because it was disputed and GoFundMe didn't want to be involved with it. They ended up returning uh, these donations, and now in addition to that, on a new platform, they've raised another eight million dollars. Um, you see these huge donations coming in. You see like American, like American wealthy business interests in America bragging about being involved in this and helping to fund it. Very, very clearly astroturf movement that is literally like doing the job of capital that is literally on the same side as these as these wealthy business interests. So, you know, not not the some authentic working class uprising is the way people are kind of framing it as. And um, again, even if someone is working class and they're part of this movement, just because there's there's plenty of extreme reactionaries that are working class, it doesn't mean you need to listen to every single delusional uh, uh, rant that they start talking about, mm -hmm. you know. And it's amazing to seeing it all over Fox News now and how conservative media and these conservative influencers like Benny Johnson have kind of latched onto this as well. Um, talking about the freedom, the fascist uh, dictatorship of Justin Trudeau in Canada. And yeah. uh, 
That's the thing. It's like, if you actually dig into that, I actually agree that Canada is very fascist, but for none of the reasons that these guys are saying, <laughs> and a lot of these people in this freedom convoy want the country literally to be more of a fascist ethno state than it is currently, which is unfortunately <laughs> something that, not something that I support. Oh, well, that <laughs> yeah. sucks. Uh, I yeah. hope, I hope this, I, the, part of what they're doing, so they're parking their trucks, like, He's and just blocking traffic. Oh, that too. But like, yeah. Are they blocking the ability of like ambulances or firefighters to, you know, maneuver throughout the city? Is that is that a is Yeah, that there's a been a couple there's been cases of that and they're blocking border crossings as well. And there's there's literally truck drivers, vaccinated truck drivers that are just trying to do their jobs that are not able to right now because these border crossings are being blocked. It's also being treated completely with kid gloves by the police. You've seen a little bit of police action as they go in and bust up these, again, these highly organized encampments that have formed, extremely well stocked with all kinds of supplies. And you have the police who predominantly, if you dig into it, most likely support this convoy within huge majorities. Uh, these reactionary cops in this country that I'm, I have no doubt uh, have made total common cause of these people. Completely treating this with kid gloves, and now in the moment beat where they beat the shit out of like indigenous yeah, protesters. Exactly. Like you've, we've, I've, I've been looking at this on my stream lately. You see what the cops, how they respond when there's like twenty indigenous people blockading a railway, uh, a railway crossing, like with family members and kids there. They send in these heavily armed thugs with with assault rifles to to uh, arrest and harass these people. And now, like after two weeks of this occupation going on, there's finally some police activity starting to actually uh, you know there's actually some consequences starting to happen for the folks that are uh, that are part of this movement and it's like they're just going on and on like this is literally 1984 now this is literally the, the this dystopian fascist government and again like all the all the previous incidents of the police uh, you know busting up indigenous protests or climate protests racial justice protests these people unequivocally support that uh, but now that there's actually some consequences for this like this two week long occupation they're like crying about how oppressed and persecuted they are and that's that's all this has ever been about you know it's about these people that kind of they're cosplaying as being these working class uh, salt of the earth types who are being persecuted despite being the people that are like at the sort of upper part of the of the hierarchy of the social hierarchy in this country uh, but just the fact that they've had to have any any efforts to uh, follow these public health measures they've had any kind of inconveniences throughout this process is way too much for them that's what they're freaking out about it's finally starting to like trickle into u.s press more and that's obviously where you're seeing the conversations but like yeah i remember when you first brought this up like a week or two ago i would kind of like shied away from it just because i hadn't seen like anybody here talking about it but now like yeah. saki is getting asked about it at press conferences so it is now like a u.s story because of the border crossings they're in they're impacting uh, canada and u.s trade now well, you're going to see they're planning it they're planning a dc convoy in march so you're going to be doing your own, really? own honking but here's the DC. thing like what, what are they going to do like all they're going to do is like inconvenience lobbyists like in that case like okay but also We've got a metro system here. Like, it's not going to, it's going to impact like people taking Ubers to go to like bars and shit, but like, what are they going to do here? Also, you're probably seeing a more aggressive response from MPD here because this is a city that's no stranger to protests and they don't really care. I don't, yeah. Like, unless you have a permit, which they're not going to give you an indefinite permit to just block the roads, you you can block one lane if you want without a permit. If you do a protest and you want to march, you can, if as long as everyone's moving, you can block one lane. If they block all of traffic, MPD is going to shut it down, I would imagine, pretty quickly. 
Um, there's just so many different security concerns here, but also like they're not going to really inconvenience anybody. <laughs> like there's no truckers or you know, like a ton of people going through like downtown DC. It's going to be just for optics, which is ultimately yeah. their play here. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. I'm going. It's pretty annoying. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, it'll probably be very annoying and loud. It's been a lot of honking. I really do feel for the people that live in like downtown Ottawa. There's people that live and work in this region. And it's just been like nonstop honking for like now two weeks. Like people are not sleeping. People are losing their minds. It's like, I, it's really, it's really, they're like really terrorizing this community that lives there. Who again, Jesus. often people have no also influence working class over those people. decisions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Anyway, enough ranting about that. I've talked about the stupid convoy enough. And for, if this was depressing for anyone too, luckily our conversation that we're having in a couple minutes with the Kayla Lacey from The Intercept was very lighthearted when we talk about you know criminal justice and the incar- mass incarceration and the Amir Locke killings in the United States. Very, very fun, lighthearted conversation. So if anyone's depressed by this intro, then get ready to laugh because there's some really, really fun <laughs> stuff coming. As always, your constant source of humor. Yeah, that's what people come to this show for. Um, No, it was quite depressing as usual. I'm going to be upfront with that, but really great conversation with Akela. You know, she does a really great job covering all these issues. There's a lot of uh, headlines right right now in the U.S. uh, about what's happening in the prison system, about what's happening with the police. Uh, So no shortage of things to get into with Akela. Before she comes on, just remind everyone: subscribe to the show. You can subscribe on Substack. It's five bucks. Uh, get access to the bonus episodes. Our last episode was with Ryan Grimm, also of The Intercept, where we talked about the whole Rogan controversy. We tried to have a little bit of a nuanced discussion about that. Fortunately, nothing happened in the in the previous week since it came out that made that more complicated and weird, uh, <laughs> thankfully, because that would make me feel pretty silly. But um, also a very good discussion to subscribe to the show on Substack in order to get access to that and other bonus episodes. That's all. I think that's all. I think we covered everything. Right? Should yeah, I think so. Let's do it. All right. So let's we're going to bring on Akela Lacey of The Intercept. She's going to be joining the show right after this. joined by Akela Lacey of The Intercept. You've been on us with us before. I believe we've asked uh, the gamer question, and I can't remember your answer. Uh, so refresh our well memory. Do it again. Yeah. yeah, are you a gamer? Um, actually, I'm kind of embarrassed, but in the like five minutes that I had between my last call and this, I was playing Mario Kart. Um, nice. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're a committed gamer. Yeah. This is like a serious <laughs> thing. It, it's like a relaxation thing, which Mario Kart is honestly not really relaxing, which no. maybe is says a little bit more about me than I should be willing to say. You but, get hit with one of those blue shells right before you get to the finish line that sends all the, the stress levels and the blood pressure just spiking immediately. Yeah. It's caused a couple of arguments between me and my boyfriend, honestly, over the last <laughs> couple of months. So um, it gets a little <laughs> tense, but uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, <laughs> I can get heated. <laughs> It's also it's just therapeutic, you know. <clears throat> who do you who do you use? Who's your go to? Yoshi. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's I was more of a Toad, a Toad person. Toad is the most. I'm, I'm Toad. That's my that's my Mario Kart go to. He's fast. He's a zippy little guy. 
He's also the most annoying character to get beaten by because he just <laughs> looks annoying. It's like if you're beat by like you know Waluigi so or Donkey I. Kong, I'm like, okay, I can take that. It's fine. But Toad is just like a slap in the face. <laughs> he's a little rat. Yeah, he's a rat. Uh, so, uh, Kayla, we're, we're grateful you're here. You've been on before. Um, and we're kind of just going through the Intercept roster in the past couple episodes, I guess. I mean, it'd be nice to have Ken on, uh, but I, I don't think just based on the, you know, kind of internal politics, <laughs> HR protocols, the band's still in place. We can't really have him on again. So it's good that we had Ryan on last week. We've got you on this week. We we love yeah. most of the Intercept staff. So uh, it's it's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, and uh, yeah, I too hope that Ken can one day join. But uh, <laughs> well, he knows what he did. Yeah, we don't need to we don't need to relitigate that. <laughs> you have been like one of the best in covering uh, criminal justice, um, police brutality, uh, and racial justice in areas like uh, Philadelphia and throughout the country. And, you know, we've had you on before to talk about some of these things. And sadly, um, a few stories and a few incidents throughout the country over the past couple of weeks um, basically, you know, have forced this conversation again. And, and we felt who better uh, than you to, to come on and talk about it. And, um, you know, we just had we just saw the killing of uh, Amir Locke in Minneapolis um, the, we were seeing uh, prisons de- uh, wrestling with COVID. We're seeing uh, the impacts of uh, prison populations being subject and influencing gerrymandering. Um, and these are all things that you've uh, been been covering. So we're, we're grateful you're here. Uh, how have you been holding up? Uh, well, you know, uh, year three of the pandemic, I think everyone is a little bit brain dead at this point, but all yes. things considered, um, I'm doing well. I have a job, I have a home. So yeah, things are good, but, um, there are, yeah, a lot of, a lot of bad things are happening. Um, you know, I feel like we were sort of thrown from covering, uh, months and months of like gridlock over build back better. Um, you know, Manchinima, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and now we're back into what feels like sort of what was the start of the summer of 2020. There, you know, this this horrible raid happened that killed Amir Locke in Minneapolis. Um, and there was just a reporting I saw actually today from the Washington Post that fatal um, police encounters spiked in 2021 for the first time since they've been tracking it, which, you know, after sort of, you know, at the same time, you know, I can't count how many articles I have seen in the past just three days about, uh, you know, how bad it is that, for example, in Axios today, I saw an article about how, you know, Cori Bush is not going to back down from the defund the police slogan, even though her Democratic colleagues want her to. Uh, And for people who live in a more sane world, I think it's pretty obvious how, like, disgustingly hypocritical, like, that kind of framing is when we are seeing these statistics and we're just coming off of a raid in an apartment that was, you know, for, for, that killed someone who wasn't named on the warrant um, in a city that was supposedly supposed to be dismantling and and total, radically changing its police department. Um, and, you know, coverage about how terrible defunding has, has supposedly been when in reality uh, no major police department significantly cut their budgets. And uh, 
after 2020, actually, you know, any cuts that they had were totally wiped out because of successful efforts to uh, use this rhetoric to to increase and, and continue inflating their budgets. Well, I, I really think it's worth like taking a step back and just it's because it's really like incredible this kind of two year process that's taking place where you have this horrific murder in Minnesota of George Floyd, which, which kicks off the literally the largest mass protest movement in modern American history um, uh, against this kind of police violence, against this kind of systemic racism in policing. It was it, this this nightly example of, of police violence. Like it was a protest against police violence. And we like Jordan cataloged a lot of this stuff uh, every single night these peaceful protests being escalated into riots by these heavily, heavily militarized police officers going in, you know, assaulting people. It was just rampant police violence night after night. Um, and this goes on for months and months and months. Eventually, you have the Democratic Party, you know, kind of trying to absorb some of that energy into sort of an electoral movement to elect Democrats and, you know, participating in these very, like, surface-level, completely completely arbitrary sort of gestures, like dressing in kinte cloth and kneeling and doing these, like, embar- these really embarrassing kind of spectacles, um, while not actually campaigning on or changing anything about the way policing works in the United States while simultaneously being accused by their opponents of being these kind of radical abolitionists or something. Um, and then, in fact, when, they, when they're disappointed in their electoral results, the first thing that they do is blame the very activists who they've been kind of trying to uh, gesture towards for being, you know, like you mentioned, too too uh, out- outrageous and too radical with their calls to defund the police and suggesting that this this call is the thing that's really the thing that's that's hurting them electorally and kind of telling people like Cory Bush, telling activists to... Um, kind of quiet down with that kind of talk. And then so two years after this process in Minnesota, again, one of the, the epicenter of this of this movement where you have, you know, the mayor uh, is Jacob Frey is his name, I believe. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Who kind of like was was a big character like around these protests. Uh, he's the mayor of Minneapolis. Gets reelected on the process on the pro- um, on the promise of ending no knock warrants. That's kind of his big kind of reformist pitch to voters for to reelect him, right? We're going to end no knock warrants. And now, so you have another a no knock warrant, which results in this really horrific killing again of Amir Locke, which you mentioned. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the worst such incidents that we've seen. He's we've seen the the body cam footage of it. It's absolutely horrendous, being killed like literally while sleeping on his sofa during this no knock warrant, which is in, for a warrant that he's not even not even named in, and. It just shows like, you know, despite this, despite this mass mobilization, despite the biggest mass mobilization in modern American history, it really drives the point home how nothing has really fundamentally changed about the way policing works in the United States. And in fact, um, like we've pointed out a couple of times, police departments have not only not been defunded, but have been given more money predominantly. Like, mm-hmm. That's the main thing Joe Biden campaigned on. And it's like, I don't know what that means for activists, you know, activists that have really put their bodies and lives on the line trying to have these conversations, it's got to be very, very discouraging for everyone in these communities to still be dealing with this exact same problem after all this time and after all that effort and energy. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, the other, <laughs> the other sort of, I think this sort of puts a, a fine point on everything that you're saying is the judge who presided over Derek Chauvin's trial signed off on the warrant in this case. And like <laughs> that, is just sort of one example of the fact that no individual, like, you know, yeah, sure, Derek Chauvin was convicted of of murder in George Floyd's case. 
Um, but no other actors in the system that made it possible for him to do what he did and to, you know, go through the police force, getting all these other complaints um, throughout his history and not ha- not being removed or, or like, you know, substantively disciplined. Um, no, no people who made that possible were, were held accountable. Um, and that's sort of what is the, it's, that's one of the most frustrating things about this because the calls from activists, the calls that we saw coming out of the 2020 protests were for things that would, would address that issue, would address the systems that make it possible for these things to keep happening over and over with no sense of accountability or change. Um, and they were called too aggressive and too, you know, they're they're asking for too much. They don't know what's good for them. Um, unfortunately, this is the same messaging that, you know, <laughs> that Republicans and white supremacists were using to counter the civil rights movement. And so I think, you know, yes, it's frustrating. It's, you know, it's really disturbing in a lot of ways. But I, a lot of people who are in the activist community um, or who are in communities that are most significantly impacted by mass incarceration and pro- police brutality uh, know that this is how it goes. And so I don't necessarily think, you know, I, I'm not going to speculate one way or the other, but I don't think that it, you know, it bodes necessarily poorly for how much energy the community in this situation will have, you know, the activist community will have. But I do think it raises a lot of questions about what is actually possible within the systems that we're operating in. Um, another thing I wanted to mention, you know, that I think uh, illustrates this really well in a meeting on Monday. Uh, this is in the reporting that I did on on the Amir Locke case this week. But in a meeting on Monday with the city council officials um, about Minneapolis's use of no-knock warrants, Jacob Fry was talking about, this is the Minneapolis mayor, Jacob Fry was talking about, uh, you know, this policy, Rob, that you mentioned that he had allegedly, uh, you know, severely restricted the use of no-knock warrants in Minneapolis to the point that they were basically not using them anymore. Um, and reporting showing that that wasn't the case at all, that they had actually, after that policy change went into effect, um, I think in the nine months after it went into effect in 2020, they had asked for 90 no-knock warrants, um, which was, uh, you know, pretty much in line with what they had been requesting prior to the policy change. So you have city council members point blank asking the mayor, what is like, what's up? Like, you, why did you say this was a ban when it clearly wasn't a ban? What is the difference between the policy change that you purportedly put in place in 2020 and what you're going to do now when he's saying that he's going to put a moratorium on no knock warrants? Um, and his answer is, you know what, like, you're right, even an outright ban isn't really an outright ban because there are situations where police can go into your home without uh, permission from a chief or a judge uh, if they determine that, you know, there's an imminent threat. Um, And they have unbelievable leeway in making that determination. Um, And so you have the mayor of this city that is the epicenter of this nationwide, this global movement for criminal justice reform and and addressing police brutality, basically admitting that his central, you know, his central commitment to this movement and what, you know, helped him get reelected and what was then used as a model in other cities um, that actually have gone further than him. But that's a different point that he can't actually do it like that. He has no power to do it. And whether or not that's, you know, that's true or or false, that's not the point. It's that 
he this is like this is the state that elected officials are in. And I think in, you know, at the national level, you have people who are just cowering from even taking a stance on this because of how effective the messaging from the right has been on, you know, what this this movement has so you know purportedly done to to spark this crime wave um and sort of the you know what's going to happen to you if you express support for criminal justice reform um so that i think is is what's more concerning and sort of how that is gonna how we're gonna see that evolve uh over the next election cycle particularly that's the i mean that's the thing like they haven't done anything on this front specifically uh, on defunding the police. And we saw that play out this week. People are saying, oh, Cori Bush needs to stop using that term. And thankfully, she's she's not. And the blame that Rob alluded to uh, was tossed around, especially uh, in, in House races in like, a, I think, a Dem caucus call in the wake of the election, uh, specifically with Dem leadership trying to blame that as a cause uh, for the loss uh, in some of the Florida races. And Debbie, like Muckrasol Powell, who lost, I think it was uh, the 26th district in Florida, um, they tried to say that her district was impacted by that rhetoric. And she even spoke out and was like, that, that isn't what's happening. That's That mm. was not why we lost. So it's like even the people who are there and know their district and are the ones losing are denying it. It's ultimately just the people who are are, are leading this, trying to dictate the messaging because they want to, you know, they don't want to alienate uh pr- the private prison industry uh the 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 bail industry the cash bail industry i mean this is something specifically that uh kamla championed when she was in the senate she wanted to end cash bail and we haven't really heard much about that uh since so like the- these are things that people will use when it's convenient and they'll throw progressives and leftists under the bus when they uh are when it's time for them to take responsibility for losing elections but mm-hmm. nothing's really been done and in fact last week Biden called for more funding for the police so this idea that the rhetoric is hurting them in any way is just totally ludicrous because nothing's happening mm-hmm. absolutely nothing is happening yeah and to your point there was also reporting after you know Biden met with Eric Adams and all these police officers in New York about Actually, I'm just going to say he just met with them because I don't know if it was in New York. I'm pretty sure it was in New York, but I'm not totally sure Um, that there was all this reporting in the New York Times saying like, oh, you know, like inside the the rift between the White House and the police and, you know, how Democrats are moving closer to the police after this meeting. And it's like, when were they? There was never a rift. Like there was never they were never misaligned with the police. Like this is all this. This is this myth that keeps being repeated and repeated and used to like justify, you know, these things that people are trying to figure out. You know, people are trying to explain why certain violent crimes did go up and ascribing all of these causes to things that where there's no correlation necessarily and like that is that the fact that that's continually repeated in mainstream media is like extremely damaging um to public opinion and to uh public policy in ways that i think are not really explored um enough i think when you mentioned as well like the the fact that the judge who convicted um derek chauvin how he was the one that approved this warrant it that that really says so much it really speaks to the way that despite all the activism and despite um you know all the energy and that people have put into uh trying to advocate for serious change 
it seems like um, like it, people it, the system is sort of incapable of addressing anything on a systemic level. And mm-hmm. the whole the Chauvin's trial was kind of given as an example of how there's this progress being made because individual bad actors are being punished. Meanwhile, all these systemic issues that allow people like that allow the George Floyd uh, killing to happen in the first place or that still allow the Amir Locke killing to happen are just never addressed or, in fact, only fester and continue to get worse. But people but activists are supposed to be happy that this like small, slight progress is made uh, by by individual uh, individual bad actors in the system actually facing consequences for it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the other piece of that in the lot case is this issue of how they're how they're scrutinizing or not scrutinizing police requests for no knock warrants. And Radley Balco has done a lot of reporting on this in Arkansas in particular. But um, there's this thing called boilerplate language that police will often say, you know, in my experience, when there are drugs, there are guns, you know, and that's sort of a justification that they'll put into a warrant request for a judge. And that is constitutionally barred for a lot of reasons. But the practice continues sort of unabated because there's it's really difficult to access those warrants, um, you know, in a timely manner for for the public or for media to report on it. But it causes like the 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 exponential sort of damage that comes from a simple thing like that is horrifying um, when you when you look at it. And I think, you know, the other important piece of this is that this whole conversation around no knock warrants in Minneapolis was not even because of you know, it was partially because of George Floyd, but George Floyd's situation didn't have anything to do with a no-knock warrant. But Breonna Taylor's killing happened yeah. because of a no-knock warrant. And so the power that that had to, you know, influence all of these changes in other cities, that sort of didn't address, that still didn't address this un- these underlying issues where, you know, there are so many people that you have to get in line on the same page to make changes to their day-to-day work, whether it's judges, you know, making sure that they're, they're, actually paying attention to what police are asking for in their warrants. Um, And like, there are a lot of structural issues there too. Like, do we have the infrastructure to be able to apply this amount of scrutiny to, to, to like, that's a lot of man work that, that has to be done. And so I think there's a lot at play here that makes it really difficult for these things to be put in place, even when there are the best intentions. And even when there is this massive popular uprising calling for it, um, which, you know, raises questions about, you know, how representative is our democracy? How responsive is our our government to the people? And I think, you know, obviously we all think a certain way about that to a certain extent. But in this case, in this situation, like, you know, the, the confluence of racial justice and police brutality issues and, you know, widening socioeconomic inequality like you have to wonder sort of how long this tension can last um and sort of like you know we saw the most you know intense protests in recent history in 2020 um and again there were thousands of people in the streets in minneapolis and so it you know i just wonder sort of what that's going to look like this year yeah that's that's the thing the 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 government not being representative of like the body politic is a huge there's a stark contrast between kind of like the, the people with their hands and the levers of power and the people who are outraged by this. And I remember seeing a poll in 2020. So, you know, recency bias might have played into it a little bit, but it was in the summer of 2020 in the wake of George Floyd's uh, murder. And 96% of people who were polled saying they wanted to see changes to the system so that, you know, bad 
or abusive officers were punished. That's like the bare minimum, right? But even still, a majority of respondents wanted to see reform. So, like, that's not even like calling for defunding the police. Like, that's just saying a majority of people want to see the police in this country and how police operate in this country being reformed. That's like a moderate take. But the thing is, Democrats aren't even proposing that. Yeah. Like, what, what What are they doing on that? They're not doing anything. Biden's right. going out and saying they need more funding. It's it's it, I, it's just like it's total like just this snide, condescending animus toward voters. I don't get it. Well, it's I mean, and, and what you're saying, too, about being representative, it, it's, it raises the question. Whenever you have this this kind of push and pull between elected officials and the police, is you start to wonder like who actually has the power in these governments? Uh, mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, like Jacob Fry is talking about ending this this uh, this the use of these no knock warrants, but while also admitting that like there's not actually anything I can really do because if the cops say that there's danger, then they can just do it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of you start to wonder like what actual power elected officials actually do have to have to rein in these like, completely out of control police departments. I mean, mm-hmm. and this is this is an international issue. It's like uh, uh, in Montreal actually, the Montreal Police Department is one of the worst police departments in in North America. You know, they're they're up there with any of the worst the worst police departments in terms of corruption, in terms of violence. Um, our mayor Val Plante campaigned on like uh, reducing their funding, on kind of pushing back against the the power that the police department has. And it's the same kind of thing. They end up just getting more funding, and none of the none of the reforms that she promised um, have even been acted on. You also had all this stuff with Bill De Blasio in New York City when he was kind of feuding with the police department over his very mild, mild criticisms of the NYPD and kind of openly opposed him and were openly defying him. Like, there's a really serious problem here where it just seems like these these. Uh, police departments have been so used to getting everything they want for decades and decades it kind of seems like they have actually more power in 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 our democracies than the actual elected officials do which is not not a great situation yeah and you know there's plenty of examples of police departments or police unions suing to stop you know popular sort of whether it's a, a ballot measure or a policy change you know in the wake of the 2020 protests you know they sued in Louisville to to stop that city from implementing a ban on no knock warrants um and so there's there's that and then there's also this sort of more esoteric power as far as like you know when there when there is actually change put in place when it you know what do we do when it doesn't have its intended effect um and going back to sort of this this you know what what's happening with respect to this in congress like the george floyd justice and policing act that you know (laughs) was gonna be passed you know at the anniversary of his death and biden committed to passing it and blah 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 had you know it had some significant changes in it but it gave more money to the police and democrats couldn't even pass that and so and there's literally been no talk of another plan to 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 resurrect that you know after they embarrassed themselves kneeling in kente cloth they haven't there hasn't been a peep about this this year it's all you know it's completely gone you know gone from from mind and biden is appearing with eric adams and you know dozens of police officers so that's sort of you know if there was any sort of thought that biden was going to deliver on this i think like there, you know, there was a little that the White House could have done anyway, and I, I just don't think that there, you know, there's no pushing Congress um, when they can't even pass the Build Back Better plan. Awesome. And, and so a lot of this stuff, uh, when you, these conversations about police violence, which just have, there's been zero improvement, there's been zero effort to actually, um, you know, 
enact even these very mild reforms like you're mentioning. Meanwhile, you also have a crisis like within the criminal justice system in the prison, the mass incarceration in the prison system as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have just uh, horror stories coming out from uh, from various prisons across the United States, from Rikers Island, um, a number of other examples which I know we can get into. I know this is one thing that when the beginning of the pandemic, that's something that was one of the first things that occurred to us, like when we started talking about this, just the way that it's the likelihood that these prisons are going to become, you know, COVID hotspots. And the, the, the people that live in these, in these facilities of which there are, there are many millions is the highest prison population uh, on earth right now. And uh, a lot of the data that's coming in is in indicating that that is that is indeed happening, and these are these places are just becoming complete epicenters of 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 disease and death and violence, and all these issues have not been addressed in any way. I know you have been covering a lot of the stuff that's been going on in the prison system throughout the last year or two. Do you want to just like update us on on some of the, what you've discovered in your reporting? Yeah, so I've been sort of following. Um, I, w- I was following a lot of efforts to. Uh, release people and sort of cut jail populations at the beginning of COVID. And there was a lot of progress made in in cutting prison po- prison and jail populations at the beginning of the pandemic. But most of them have, you know, risen back to their their pre-pandemic populations or or above. Um, and I've been following in Philadelphia, um, there has been there's been litigation um, over jail conditions and, and prison conditions, you know, all over the country. But in Philadelphia, um, the city agreed they settled uh, they agreed to pay one hundred fifty thousand dollars, I think, to uh, a, a local bail fund um, this year, which was their second settlement um in in litigation over actually litigation is not the right word it's their second settlement in this lawsuit over conditions in the philadelphia jail where 19 people have died in philly jails um you know in the last year or so which i think is uh around if not higher than the number of people that have died at rikers um and i just mentioned that comparison not because it's you know one is more important than the other, but there has been way more coverage of the Rikers situation. Um, and there's been some more attention to what's happening in, in Pennsylvania, but there was some reporting today um, that Pennsylvania hasn't been accurately reporting the number of deaths in its jails. So even the data that we do have um, is doesn't really tell a full picture of like just how bad things have gotten in here. You know, this is sort of the similar complaints at a lot of places, but, you know, no, you know, being locked in your cell for 23 hours a day, not having access to um, uh, uh, sanitary supplies or clean water. I, I covered a Legionnaires outbreak um, in a New Jersey state prison um, a little under a year ago um, that they didn't tell the uh, the incarcerated population about. Um, they found out basically through word of mouth um, and it, it, it impacted a lot of people. Um, and those are, these are just, I, I think what's important, I want to just highlight the fact that like, while the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely um, without a doubt exacerbated and, and made conditions in, in jails and prisons really terrible. I think it's also just given people an outlet to bring attention to how bad conditions were prior to COVID and how yeah. we sort of just allow people to languish um, in 
these in cell blocks, um, and, and, you know, where, you know, their constitutional and human rights are supposed to still be protected. Um, and they're absolutely not. Um, and, and that we sort of just write that off because, um, they're, you know, condemned people and, and they're, they're there, you know, serving, serving time for something. And so I think that's, that's sort of one thing that I would just underscore just overall. I'm looking here, uh, at, um, a friend of this friend of the show, Adam Johnson, of the podcast citations needed he has a substack called the column put out a piece on january 28th because the data is coming in from 2020 which showed a 61 percent rise in u.s prison deaths mm. which is just like it's it's kind of unfathomable and it's like it's it's amazing the extent to which this has been kind of completely ignored like you don't really hear about these stories this is not being really told in the media it's something that should be a huge scandal like you pointed out and this isn't all because of covid i mean these 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 places were already like completely uh, there were people already languishing and suffering in these facilities already but it's just been exacerbated by the whole pandemic like adam points out as well part of it is that the the facilities are so uh, tied up with dealing with covid patients that other people that have other medical issues are being completely ignored it's a really huge like startling rise and not something that's really being discussed. And in fact, I think the really interesting and, and fucked up framing in this, that is that when you talk about what the media has been talking about, and it's like we mentioned, it's, they've been talking about the, the Democrats' plans to defund the police. They've been talking about, you know, this, this crime wave, the shoplifting crime wave that we hear endless stories about. There's been so, there's been just so many stories about, you know, while Wal- people are walking out of Walgreens with, with, uh, without paying, you're getting all kinds of viral footage of like grandmas throwing their throwing themselves in front of uh, these these mean shoplifters that are stealing from Walmart and all these big corporations and the, the fact that there's this like ongoing crisis of death and misery in the, in the United States prison system completely not ever mentioned Rob I I, I think you're being a bit blase here uh, this is there oh, is a yeah, serious shoplifting wave here I just just uh, this week we saw 10 stakes being stolen from a Trader Joe's in New York wow. but thankfully Thankfully, uh, our, our, our nation's best and brightest uh, in the media circles are all over it. And MSNBC Good. had a panel with five pundits today talking about that story. <laughs> a pundit for every two stakes. And it was just really remarkable to see uh, that. Cause, like, this isn't, I mean, it's a, it's a one-off thing. You know, it isn't like, it isn't like a stake, like, grand heist throughout <laughs> Uh, New York, yeah. you know, they're not going from store to store and stealing all of these these things. This is a one-off incident, and what they're trying to do is drum up that fear. It, this is also something that MSNBC like traditionally mocked when Fox was doing it, like a month or two ago. There's a clip I found today from MSNBC a month ago debunking the the Republican hysteria over shoplifting, and now they're just like, all right, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So now they're doing it, and <laughs> I, I, like what, what what's really sad is like. Trader Joe's has like been under fire and I think even had to pay like a, a pretty big fine or settlement for wage theft. I mean, where's where's your coverage yes. of that? Is yeah. that part of the conversation? Why don't we talk about things like that? No, it's 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 the individual 10 stake thing because that feeds into a larger narrative about funding the police. And I just I just had to find this because I remember seeing this and like this is when I was like, I'm not reading about this anymore. This you know, there was some reporting about, you know, alleged, you know, shocking doubling rates of shoplifting uh, in Target in San Francisco. And uh, it it was literally uh, an error in the system that 
the automated system that they use to report. Um, and, and it was just repeated, you know, uncritically, um, it, you know, multiple, numerous times, you know, in, in various media outlets until somebody went and, and sort of looked at what was going on. And like, you just think about how, how, the, how, how often that happens when we're extrapolating, you know, a five person panel on CNN from one, one incident. Um, and what that does to, I mean, it's just like it. Can I curse? I was just going to say it's do, fucked yeah. up. Like you can't just like it scare people up. into like you know think you know into believing you know everything that they that they're reading about this stuff. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. And like it takes a lot more work to go back and explain to people like why you know that shocking headline that they saw was wrong than it does to actually you know to do it to do it right in the first place. Um, so it's just really frustrating as a reporter. Yeah, certainly. I imagine so. And, and it's also really, I think, worthwhile to take a look at the discrepancy. Um, talking about you know the coverage, for instance, of that of the the NYPD officer that was killed a few weeks ago, and the massive, massive kind of state funeral that he got with hundreds of thousands of cops on the streets of New York, and the wall to wall coverage of that in the media. And you know, when you talk about the, the statistically the likelihood that police officers are uh, going to be killed on the job versus like this epidemic of violence of people being gunned down in the street in their own homes, which, as you pointed out, is only increasing this epidemic of violence and misery uh, in the United States prison system. Like there's there's zero comparison. Um, But it just it's she's like what the actual priority is of the media to sort of sharing this message. And like if you ask probably average people that take their cues from the media, they'll tell you that it's like, you know, police are just being defunded. They're they're being defunded and abandoned by liberal politicians. They're just being shot at day in, day out and, and killed on the job. And the constant violence that people are suffering at the hands of the police, both in the street and in the prison system, uh, completely just off everyone's radar. It's it's incredibly uh, dystopian when you when you break down this kind of discrepancy. Yeah, I I was I noticed um, there was some reporting on the funeral of of one of the officers that was killed. Well, one thing I wanted to mention is that during that there was footage of all these cops like jumping over the turnstiles in the subway system in New York. Yeah, with no masks. Yeah, yeah, which is um, yeah, the site has you know that the subways (laughs) the subway turnstile is the site of many uh, an arrest and a harassment by NYPD all the time. So that is just ironic and whatever annoying, but. At the funeral of one of the officers, his widow um, basically said, you know, I know that you hated all of these, you know, this progressive district attorney's policies. And, you know, we're all, you know, we're all thinking about that, you know, now that you're gone and like they're hearing you speak through me, basically like directing her comments at at the DA. Um, And so just that example to say that, you know, all of this all of this reporting on this so-called, you know, crime wave, um, the shoplifting spree, all of that stuff, violence against police is being blamed on criminal justice reform efforts, like even at a very local level. And it's, that is like, you know, that's what's driving sort of these, these recall efforts against Chesa Boudin and Larry Krasner. And there's a couple district attorneys in Northern Virginia where, you know, right-wing operatives are spending, you know, not insignificant amounts of money. You know, this is separate, but the Newsom recall election, I think they wasted what, like $200 million. And that is like that, the Newsom recall is like, a I don't even know what's going on there. I think some of these things overlap, but it's more about the pandemic. Um, but just the the district attorney recalls um this reminds me of like this crazy 
thing in California that we reported on last year where this like tech, <laughs> this angel investor basically ran a GoFundMe to uh, raise money to get a reporter to like uncover how terrible Chesa Boudin had been for San Francisco. Um, and he is like considering running for mayor. And so there's just like crazy amounts of money being thrown into this also to sort of hype up this false narrative that not only are all these things, not only is everything getting worse in terms of crime, um, but it's because of these, you know, progressive reform ideas um, that are taking hold. I think what's really frustrating, well, of the many things that are frustrating about all of this, and to go back to the prison population thing, is just as we see people, you know, who, uh, you know, not all of them are in there on life sentences. And not all of them committed, like, heinous crimes. Uh, And not that even if someone did, that doesn't mean they deserve to die, especially a premature death, or die from COVID or die from mistreatment or, or whatever, but just the total, like ignorance to their suffering from from a vast majority of people is really is really frustrating i mean there's people in rikers that haven't even been convicted of a crime like (laughs) yeah it's just like this is this is it's really disgusting uh and if they even are lucky enough to get out later we you know companies basically in many places in the country can just like totally you know quietly discriminate against them refuse to hire them demand a background check and you know not not explicitly acknowledge that's why they're not hiring them but it's like it's much harder for someone to re-enter society and this entire system hinges on that concept that you go in you you pay your dues you come out better off for it but because our system is so stacked against them, that's why we have such high recidivism rates. And then even though people might want to turn their life around, they like they understand the severity of what they did, that people will turn a blind eye to them being mistreated, abused, or or, or, or dying in, in jail or prison, it just completely upends this entire premise, which only works if we're all bought in on it. So it's just, it's, it's, it's reflective of a real callousness in society that I just like really can't get over. I mean, yeah, most people <clears throat> in jail are, you know, pre-trial or haven't been convicted. And I, I think like, you know, to a certain extent, I think a lot of people do know that, but I think people don't really fully understand what that means in terms of like how, how just the basic idea that our constitution applies to everyone, which, you know, obviously there are, we've, we've talked about many examples where that's not the case, but that, you know, the, why that, the widespread impact that that has on a daily basis and like the fact that it is the number continues to increase um isn't alarming to more people i think jordan your word callous you know describes it pretty perfectly um and the the other thing is that while there had been sort of all these efforts to sort of pay more attention to to these issues and take uh take a more sort of humane approach to criminal justice that would then reduce recidivism rates. We're seeing that then now blamed for, you know, when there was an incident where, um, was it Kenosha when there was the the person drove into the, yeah, um, yeah. into the parade? It was like widely reported that it was, you know, it was a, it was because he was let out on bail because of this progressive prosecutor. And like, that wasn't the case at all. Like, and, and so that is just, it's just frustrating that that in turn sort of works against any efforts to address conditions um, for people 
in these in you know who are incarcerated and and in a lot of cases haven't been convicted of a crime or even gone to trial um and the times for the ti- the wait times for that has only gotten worse with the with you know court closures during the pandemic and so um just the the idea that so many people um are languishing for for you know in particular for uh without having gone through that process is is really disturbing um when you think about how wide widespread it is yeah and i guess the really grim reality right now is like um i think everyone seems to understand that electorally the math the electoral prospects for the democratic party is not exactly looking too great right now what with the failure to pass the entire agenda that they campaigned on which i'm sure they'll also end up blaming on activists in the first place but now it looks like even the very very mild modest reforms that were maybe possible with the democratic party are not even going to be an option anymore which is like a really grim i think prospect for the the future of of this kind of movement in america and like I, I've, I saw that there were protests forming uh, in response to the Amir Locke killing. I'm kind of wondering what the prospects are of that possibly spiraling into something similar to what we saw um, in 2020. At the same time, I imagine for activists, it's got to be really exhausting to know the the amount of energy and 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 time and and blood and sweat and tears that activists poured into that movement in 2020 to see the results be so contrary to everything that was asked for um, to see it going backwards in many ways i imagine it's going to be really difficult for for people to sort of convince themselves to keep going out there and keep putting their bodies on the line when it looks like none of this none of these mass mobilizations no matter how big they are are actually having any kind of impact in terms of the criminal justice system in the united states yeah i mean it's 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 really depressing when you put it that way, but I think I have like, a knack for that. Yeah, I've been told. <laughs> yeah. But I think you know, while I do, I definitely, I certainly think there there hasn't been a lot to suggest that you know, even if if these changes do go in, into place, that they're going to have sort of the intended impact in in the amount of time that would be sort of like uh, appropriate to like. To actually change the system, but I think that at the same time, you know, there is no world in which something like what the protests in 2020 were calling for isn't met with this much opposition. Um, I just think that is the nature of how these systems are designed to work. And so I think like yeah, while it doesn't, you know, I have no idea what what things are going to look like. I think like the conversation has certainly progressed to a place um you know whether it's 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 fundamentally good or bad or positive or negative the the conversation has certainly i think made progress like even if we're you know we have these dumb conversations about whether or not democrats should be defunding the police when they're not even defunding the police the idea that you know there was um some there there were at least you know a majority of of members of of the democratic caucus that were gonna you know push for a federal ban on no knock warrants um even if that is symbolic and 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 no knock warrants continue to happen i think a lot of activists understand that and and sort of do the work that they do because they don't think that operating within the system will fundamentally change things but you still need people in positions of power to at least start having the conversation, whether they're genuine about it or not. So I think that is one positive takeaway. Um, and I think just remembering that, you know, revolutionary sort of change, like the types of things that people 
who were protesting in 2021 to see happen to the the carceral system and the police system. Um, uh, yeah, it's never going to look like what people expect it to look like. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's it's not um, it's not you know it's it's useless necessarily. So I think you know. I don't necessarily feel good about <laughs> about anything significant changing in Minneapolis, particularly after the you know the what what Jacob Fry said about his power to actually put a stop to this. But um, I do think that the fact that he was sitting in a city council meeting where people were were making him you know he basically he had to admit that he used language that was you know too quote casual to describe this this warrant uh, or this this ban that he had this purported ban that he had put in place um and so while that isn't a substantive thing that will make change in minneapolis i don't necessarily think that that's something that might have happened you know if we were talking about this 20 years ago which seems sort of like <laughs> i'm like I, f I feel even silly for framing it that way but i think you know when you're faced with so much destruction and sort of horror like horrifying news uh, you know and and you want to feel like or or it's it's very easy to feel like there's no point to any of this and i think maybe the point is is not you know necessarily what we think it is um you know whether that's push that's you know passing a law or something you know people didn't even even though the george floyd bill was like you know the quote unquote best chance for dems to like do something on criminal justice reform you know people who are out in the streets marching don't give a shit about the george floyd justice and policing act yeah. like they just want to feel safe in their communities and so i think like getting people to just getting people to even have these conversations is is um is something of an achievement in that sense yeah and if, if push came to shove and people did try to push dems on it especially right now where just it looks like nothing is going to happen before midterms at all yeah um they would just kind of you know pass the buck and be like well that's a local issue you need to you need to i you should go fight and organize at the local level but the, the dems have like no real grassroots strategy like they just haven't been getting their clocks cleaned in state legislatures and uh at the local level for decades so like it's already a, a totally lopsided system um you save for like you know some of the bigger cities and even there like you, you have some pretty conservative dealings uh, in, in in completely blue areas. So, like it's just there's no real robust, committed, progressive, like grassroots effort. Uh, the Dems even back that that could even tackle this at the local level. No, 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 definitely not. And I think it's. I mean, it's going to be interesting because if if Democrats lose, you know, people who were out protesting or who voted for Biden because they thought that that they were actually going to do something on criminal justice reform, which, you know, I don't know for how many people that's like, a you know, a, a single issue for for how many voters. But I know that a lot of people really do care about that. And that is going to be somehow spun <laughs> as, you know, not a failure of Dems, not, you know, not passing Biden's social spending package or doing anything to to materially make, you know, living conditions better for for working class people, as he promised, um, or doing anything for for black voters, um, as he also promised, uh, that somehow that's not going to be seen as a as a failure on the part of on Democrats. It's going to be seen as, um, you know, voters not knowing what's good for them or, or yeah. something like that. So, um, yeah, well, I it don't sounds think... like you want the Republicans to get voted in. Jeez, that's going <laughs> to be. Me. Yeah. 
that's gonna but be I mean, every single time that's how that's yeah i mean to. there wasn't there was some reporting on this in 2020 but you know i think this is also going to be interesting to watch but you know there was a sh- despite you know republican rhetoric on a lot of this stuff there was a shift you know among minority voters to the republican party and away from democrats and i think there hasn't been a there hasn't been like a good faith effort to sort of talk about why that was um and i'm not saying i necessarily think that's going to happen again but i do think that um you know it could be something that's more like people just don't show up <laughs> uh yeah and I, I could see that being a real a real thing especially with the voting rights stuff because that was another promise and now we have this supreme court decision that um basically said that you know go fuck yourselves we're gonna gerrymander you if you like it or not yeah. well mentioned said no so not much you can do about it yeah you certainly can't mention his name or go put any pressure on him because that would be way over the line obviously from what we're taking from what they've been doing so far uncivil yeah it'd be very uncivil to actually like say something to the people in your own party there that are blocking your own agenda from passing but yeah i think that's the kind of the scary thing too and you look back through american history and you see these like moments these these moments of progress that get met with this kind of big reactionary backlash like the civil rights movement and the civil rights legislation that that passed in the late 60s which people you know really struggled for uh, it resulted in a number of like positive progressive changes. And then there's this big reactionary backlash after of the mass incarceration era and the Reagan era and all this stuff. And now this, this kind of scary thing about what's happening in America right now is you feel that reactionary backlash coming and there hasn't actually been really any progress to speak up to even like uh, lead to it. Um, now you have, I mean, like I said, they've been giving yeah. more money to the police. They haven't passed any of these criminal justice reforms. And now you have like a move on the part of Republicans to like ban the the teaching of any form of like racism in American history yeah. and to sort of so this whole this whole reactionary backlash is coming and there hasn't been any real significant progress to speak of to actually um you know counterbalance that which is a kind of a scary moment in uh, in American history yeah and instead of talking about how you know I'm just thinking about Glenn Youngkin because my the school that I went to apparently he's speaking at this like ceremony that they're having and I was just appalled when someone told me that today um but you know his win in Virginia was sort of you know people all people talked about was like oh well you know he was really good on the pandemic and on school closures and understanding what people wanted and not that he just completely bought into this fear-mongering on critical race theory and and you know energized people in the reddest parts of the state um you know i think both of those things certainly had something to do with the election but i think like to to pretend which a lot of you know pundits and and analysts have that the critical race theory stuff is not as uh as significant um or you know concerning is is just like disingenuous um and yeah, I mean, the the number of bills that states have passed banning critical, you know, under the guise of banning critical race theory, but that have actually passed laws restricting First Amendment rights and freedom of speech and like, you know, striking fear into the hearts of teachers and, and students and their families should really alarm Republicans. And, you know, they're they're having a field day. So, yeah. I, you know, that's also something that's really frustrating. And unfortunately, just like the world that we live in, you know, there was a ton of reporting on the critical race theory hysteria and very little on what lawmakers were actually doing to like, you know, codify, you know, policies and laws around, around, you know, basically like 
cementing this boogeyman into our our sort of psyche and and now we've moved on to back to the crime wave and and i don't know that we're going to get a thorough investigation of 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 that so it sucks (laughs) great well it happened again it happened again <laughs> like, we're gonna look, leave the I, gaming like, talk to the end of the show, and then we can maybe. leave on something more lighthearted next time. But I, I, I think there's a bright spot. We're gonna have like a, okay. I think distraction, and people can you know move on. A good thing that I think everyone is going to agree is a good idea, uh, and um, wouldn't it certainly won't be argued in bad faith by Republicans. I think uh, a nominal amount of money to support safe using sites yes there's no way that could blow up there's no way they could take that and just say biden's giving people crack pipes yeah that would just be way too disingenuous uh, that, that, there's no that. way that too much. Oh, don't yeah. do this to me <laughs> i saw that this morning i like didn't i didn't know the background and i just saw biden's giving people crack pipes and i'm like somehow I what don't. is this yeah what is this but it's like he it's like a, a i think 30 million to support um potentially 30 million to support like safe using sites and within you know with safe using sites if it's for heroin hey here's a clean needle so you don't like um you know spread disease or get it contracted disease if you're using used needles or, or sharing or whatever and i think within this there's like you know pipes that people could use i don't care about that like i understand as someone who you know wrestled with addiction when he was younger lost friends to addiction I th- the that is like the lowest possible bar a government can do, and also when I, when I was in uh, like all over Europe in December, I saw these everywhere. Yeah, like I saw like sa- like Satan needle drops in the park everywhere. Yeah. It's like people just fucking get it. It's like, look, this is a problem. Obviously, the war on drugs isn't going to get rid of it. How do we like make it a little bit more manageable? Oh, here, here's a place where you can dump your needles. Hey, here's a clean needle so you don't contract HIV. Like it's very, very base level stuff uh, that a, that a normal civilized society would mutually agree upon. Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, it goes back to everything that we've been saying. It's like it seems like, especially in the United States, is like the only way that people can imagine that these social problems are dealt with, whether it's drug abuse, whether it's homelessness. Um, is through this like punitive carceral system and anything that has tries to inject any kind of empathy into that or deal with things in a in a less punitive way without relying on law enforcement without relying on the carceral system is just demonized and and immediately and immediately given up on and the, like the only way that these these social issues can ever be tackled is by just more money the more money to the cops more militarization more prisons and just it's it's it just shows no sign of slowing down. And in fact, judging from like what is on kind of on the horizon politically, we'll probably only continue to speed up and escalate. Yeah, when I saw when I so a friend texted me the crack pipe thing, and I was just like, um, <laughs> I don't I don't know what to say. Like I assume that this has to do this has something to do with safe injection sites. Um, but I I just think like it's fascinating also to think about how the response to something like this is in and how in comparison to like you know the response to the opioid the opioid academic more broadly you know in terms of the the pharmaceutical companies that uh, were responsible for it and sort of like compassion for the you know the hundreds of thousands of families that have lost people to the opioid epidemic um and to contrast that to okay yeah but when we're talking about making it safer for people 
um, you know, who use other drugs, um, it's, it's like a, it's a moral catastrophe. And I mean, I do think, you know, I, I think it's interesting. It's not surprising to me that the conservative sites sort of like, you know, they seized on the fact that it said safe smoking kits in this HHS, in this grant, um, that is supposed to be going to, to these programs. Republicans have sort of like, tried to carve out a, a, a lane for themselves on, or at least under Trump, they had like tried to carve out a lane for themselves on like, you know, being there, there being sort of room for bipartisan movement on, um, on criminal justice and, 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 and prison reform and, and, uh, you know, marijuana legalization or, or stuff like that. And like, I think that's totally just gone out the window sort of in the last couple of of years in a, in a way, even though they were never, you know, you know, genuinely committed to it at all. But I just think it's interesting that sort of the messaging has shifted a lot to sort of be much more punitive, especially when we're talking about people of another race or another class who might be using, you know, this type of drug and sort of the, the narratives that get ascribed to that and how media seizes on it. But, you know, I realized that when I was Googling this and it was like Newsweek and Fox and all, all these things, I was like, okay, so this is out. This is how this one's going to go. Um, yeah. yeah. And of course they just immediately back down as well, rather than even make any effort whatsoever to explain like what this stuff is. It's just like, Oh no, no, that's out Jack. Yeah. It's, it's the first response. Never Great. mind. Yeah. yeah. Forget yeah. we said anything. Yeah. Don't get too mad at us. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Very inspiring. Um, I, I'll just also mention the justice department is also like, um, they're evaluating whether to support, um, this Supreme court case on, on safe injection sites right now, um, which was something that the Trump administration had opposed and Biden was, hadn't, they hadn't weighed in yet. And a lot of people were wondering sort of when he took office, whether they were going to take a position on that. So, um, you know, that is possibly, that could be a positive thing, um, if they would weigh in, in, in support of of upholding the site's right to exist. Um, so that that is a positive note to end on. Unless you want to examine the political makeup of the Supreme Court when it starts to get less possible. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder whether that's going to be possible. Uh, You're not leaving here in a good mood. Yeah, that's I our refuse. commitment. I refuse to let it happen. I refuse. Oh, my God. We just read, I just read this crazy, crazy story. Have you guys read the story about Clarence Thomas's wife? Why, I know a lot about her, but is there something new? There was a, Jane Mayer wrote this uh, profile in The New Yorker. I think it was last month. Um that we were just discussing and it's just it goes into just i mean it's unbelievable how many conflicts of interest um, yeah. she has with cases that you know by far right groups that that have business before the court um and it just sort of goes into all of that and like how um other justices have have handled even the appearance of a conflict of interest and how there's sort of like no mechanism for holding um her or Clarence Thomas accountable with with respect to this and it's it's wild um I highly recommend yeah. it yeah and like so I remember I, I listened to an NPR interview with her about it I didn't read it uh but one of the things I remember she mentioned was Roberts's wife quit her job when he got confirmed because they didn't want like any conflict of interest at all, and like other other um, justices will recuse themselves if they uh, uh, have a you know a spouse that's involved in any case. Um, it, she, she's passed away now, but um, Ginsburg, when when her husband Marty, who was a pretty prominent litigator, uh, 
I think he gave up his practice too. Like there's a long history of people going out of their way to recuse themselves from cases to avoid conflicts of interest. And like, not only is she like, are they not doing that? But like, she's connected with some pretty fringe fucking people on the yeah. right too. Yeah, like Frank Gaffney. Yeah, Ali Alexander, I think. There's even some like an, uh, an overlap with a lot of the January 6th people. Oh yeah, and yeah. It's it's really really grotesque. Yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 scary and like I also I don't know I it's also this is another thing where it's like you know Democrats it, it, are they going to do the civility politics thing and like not do everything they possibly can to uh, to add someone and the <laughs> I mean if history repeats itself which it does I think <laughs> the, I think the answer is no um, and so yeah that sets up a really dark future for all of us. <laughs> awesome now that is yeah, the, that's what we're the looking best. for you're, now you're really yes getting that's it. what we're going for that's Thank what we you. need now, that's I think the we good got, stuff we've got enough now right yeah i think we've think we got it all i think we covered it all yeah <laughs> you have to laugh sometimes Perfect. you just have to laugh Perfect. that's the only thing you can do. um well akela it's um i'm not gonna say it was a pleasure to talk to you it was kind of painful and at times but not your fault at all we really appreciate that you you were able to come on we really appreciate the work that you do and the reporting you do with the intercept just want to let everyone know where they can find uh, find you online and find your your writing. And we'll, before we say goodbye here, yeah, uh, at Akela underscore Lacy A K E L A C Y and at theintercept.com. Um, thank you guys for having me. It was fun, even though it was also yeah That's sad, how do it. but yeah, it's yeah, it's nice to to talk to people about it. Yep. <laughs> well, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank right, you guys. Care. Thank you for listening to the Insurgents. Please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com. Find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. And please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot. But please, again, don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban. So please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye.